Hello, I'm Andrew Parsons, and welcome back for another episode of At Home with REITs. Ordinarily, our podcasts go to our thesis on the benefits of focus and simplification of REITs, principally operating in developed markets. Not so today, as I speak with SDN de Klerk, a Chief Executive of Growth Point South Africa. I thought Growth Point would provide something a little different in terms of insights into a far more complicated picture associated with South Africa's political governance and crucially, the dynamics of real estate in a high interest rate environment. Throwing the impacts of COVID and an extraordinarily diverse investment strategy, and we can appreciate the epic challenges facing Growth Point. So um, we are South Africa's largest REIT. Uh, we have uh, investments in South Africa. We focus on uh, retail, office and industrial as our primary sort of uh, multi-focus, uh, uh, sectoral focus. Uh, we have a, a, a joint venture investment in a multi-use precinct, which is world-renowned called the Victoria and Alfred Waterfront. And then we control companies in uh, Australia called uh, the uh, Growth Point Properties Australia is pretty well known. I think it's now circa the 10th largest REIT on the ASX. We have a, a controlling stake in a very small REIT in the UK called Capital and Regional, which owns seven odd properties uh, uh, in, in the UK, mostly in London. And then we've got a, a, a significant uh, investment into a company in Eastern Europe, which is Eastern Europe's largest office and industrial player called Global Worth. So the mission of the company is really to be a, a leading in international property company, um, providing space to thrive to 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 all our stakeholders. And um, you know we we focus on providing uh, innovative property solutions broadly uh, to to the, the the clients we deal with, uh, and that includes uh, apart from providing office space and retail and industrial space. Uh, we also have a significant development capability, uh, certainly in South Africa and in Eastern Europe. And then we, we do um, also provide fund management services. So we, we have started uh, a fund management business. We've got um, a healthcare fund that, uh, that in, uh, we've got third party investors in. We're busy raising a student accommodation fund at the moment. Um, we also have a investment into what we broadly refer to uh, ironically as the Africa Fund, but it's a company called Lango, which focuses on real estate investment north of the South African borders. Uh, and just, you know, the context is clearly real estate investment into the rest of Africa is actually uh, at very early stages. And, um, and, and, you know, South Africa actually in many uh, ways is a developed country uh in in certain aspects and certainly when it comes to the financial and real estate sectors very much uh, uh developed in in its uh in its characteristics so so what what was the sort of inspiration for growth point in terms of this this strategy and philosophy yeah so i think we've uh, we've been very blessed in that we've had kind of a core management team uh that's been able to stick together we originally uh, Growth Point was an externally managed fund, if you'd like, uh, property funds. And uh, most of us work for one of the investment banks, 
which had the management contract. And then in 2007, we internalized management. And uh, effectively, you know, we obviously set our strategy uh, at that point. And, um, you know, very early on, uh, it was evident that the South African economy was going to be quite difficult uh, for a couple of years after the World Cup. So we started exploring, um, in, uh, broadening our horizons to the international market uh, since really 2009, which was our first investment into Australia. And um, and I think, you know, from a from an offering perspective, we've in a way, being quite opportunistic in, in our strategy. So maybe uh, an analogy is like a TV game, you know, you've got the rules, you're playing a certain game, and uh, and as things happen, you kind of have to adapt. And uh, that's what we've always really, uh, I think, done reasonably well. I mean, there is probably things you could have done better. I mean, uh, if I look back, I probably would have, um, you know, maybe... Uh, uh, been a little bit more aggressive on disposals in South Africa and a little bit more aggressive on acquisitions in Australia, as an example, you know, if you had a perfect uh, hindsight. But um, mm -hmm. the reality is, is that we've always been uh, uh, reasonably opportunistic and and we do spend quite a bit of time on strategy, thinking about the business, you know, and, and having to, because we're in a very incredibly dynamic environment, uh, specifically in the South African context, but even globally, you know, given uh, the past year and a half, what we've seen in the real estate world, um, it certainly has uh, required uh, quite nimble management and uh, innovative uh, uh, solutions, you know, and it's not that we've got all the answers because uh, things are particularly complicated. I think from an Australian perspective, if I had to explain to you a normal week in South Africa, I think uh, the sort of challenges that a South African management team has to deal with, you'll be surprised that we can run, run a business at all. So, you know, those sort of dynamics uh, make us, um, you know, uh, reasonably uh, nimble in many respects. And, um, you know, our ability to deal with uh, uncertainty and with change uh, is probably a little bit more developed than many of the, the developed countries' management teams, you know. Mm. So then, I mean, as you say, the, the, the strategy since 2017, 15 years, how do you measure success, do you think? What, what's, you know, you think you've made great strides in that time? Yeah. So clearly, I mean, you know, you're always going to look at the financial metrics first. And I mean, given the experience that we have had uh, in the past year and a half, I mean, our share price at one stage list, literally lost uh, 60 seven percent of its value it has recovered uh, somewhat so we're probably about 50 percent down um, you know from from our highs if you'd like um, but the you know the fundamentals in in our country have led to you know if you if you measure things purely on share price performance i would argue then over the past um, uh, five to ten years we haven't been particularly successful but the reality is, is what we have uh, done as a management team, you know, led by uh, Norbert Sasser, our group CEO, is we've built a, a, a very uh, resilient business. We've built a business that uh, offers a very good diversification uh, across various geographies. Um, it is underpinned by quality earnings, so our tenants are uh, quality and our assets are, you know, sort of the best quality uh, in the different jurisdictions that we we operate 
so we've sort of uh, gone for uh, for a specific uh, niche in 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 different areas, and and that has you know sort of underpinned uh, a, a dynamic kind of. Um, uh, environment, but with solid uh, income. And then I think mm. uh, we have managed to keep our management team together uh, through thick and thin. thin. Um, I mean, we have had some setbacks. Uh, we uh, Along the way, we have uh, lost uh, probably over the past 10 years, uh, lost two management team members, uh, you know, to death, which is uh, very testing mm. on a team, having to come through yeah. those things. But really it's either. part of humanity, you know, and unfortunately, yeah. Uh, things move on and uh, time doesn't stand still for anybody, unfortunately. But uh, the reality is, is that we've got a proven track record. Uh, we've uh, from a, certainly from a South African and even in a global context, we've really got sort of best practice corporate governance um, in, in the, in, in the uh, environment where ESG is uh, now becoming quite popular. You know, we've implemented many of those principles. Uh, over many years, and it's ingrained in the way we do our business. And, uh, you know, if I have to explain to you in the South African context, the kind of things that we have to do uh, as it relates to, let's say, social and governance, uh, it is um, quite, uh, you know, uh, quite a extreme scenario relative to maybe what a Australian company has to deal with. Mm. So when we think about, let's say, just procuring services, the obligations on a South African company to develop um, suppliers, to ensure that they are representative, to ensure that they uh, maintain uh, good health and safety standards uh, and, and run honest businesses. A lot of those obligations fall on the big companies in South Africa. And, um, and you know, those processes are all now built into our business. And we have the most phenomenal enterprise development initiatives that actually have become industry uh, standard and and we've got our, our competitors our partners you know uh, in in many of these initiatives so the south african real estate industry has had to pull together to some extent uh, and and is working hard you know to to try and make the country a better place but also a lot of these principles when we uh, when we go and invest in uh, companies abroad we try and instill some of these uh, principles you know diversity on the board good corporate governance uh, managing our risk properly looking at remuneration practices at the highest level so you know all these kind of factors uh, we've been able to to roll out globally and and you know i think we are quite proud about uh, our business albeit that you know we're going through uh, probably the darkest times that we as a management team ever have had to face the reality is, is it's a it's a really a, it's a really decent business and look, you raise a fascinating point in terms of, um, you know, South African experience. Probably um, when we talk about real estate, there's a lot more focus on the, the E and the G than the S. Um, and, and South Africa probably um, uh, more weighting towards the S as well. So mm -hmm. what, what, from your perspective, do you think the, the rest, what are the, would be the key thing that you think South Africa in the ESG front would, would be able to show to the rest of the world has been beneficial to investors more broadly. Yeah. I mean, I do think that, you know, given South Africa's political history and just the social environment, clearly there's been incredible focus on the S 
from a from a sustainability perspective, if you'd like, uh, of any organization. And in fact, South African organizations have had to really focus on that component. So that runs right through the organization when it comes to diversity uh, of staff, management. These things get measured and quantified and they, there's targets uh, specifically set. Uh, I mean, a company like GrowthPoint has 50 uh, two or 33 percent of our staff are female. Uh, we've got good representation right through the organization. Uh, and on top of that, we also man manage, uh, you know, our racial diversity, which is probably a more unique thing to, to the South African context. And we do that numerically at all levels. So, you know, there's, there's huge pressure on organizations to ensure that that happens. On top of that, I've already touched on the, the aspects of having to, um, you know, develop enterprises that service uh, our company and our clients, broadly speaking. And uh, then, you know, even broader, you know, investment into communities, uh, literacy programs, uh, social programs, when, it, uh, when we deal with safety and, um, you know, um, uh, specifically uh, violence against women, all these aspects are being dealt with from our sort of social aspect. Then when it comes to, you know, the environment. I mean, just on that, though, yeah. I'm, I don't want to, you know, it's one of those topics you don't want to sound insensitive. No, and, sure. and we can also be... Um, uh, uh, How does that frankly, create share the value, I think, is what you... Oh, about, I, I don't want to be insincere, yeah. but I want to understand what, what can you point to yeah. that the rest of the world can say that there is a, a clear uh, benefit or do you think it is still too early to, to, yeah. to be able to... No, no, I definitely think, I mean, there's definitely, I mean, we operate in an environment where what's uh, showed up over over the past uh, couple of years is that, um, you know, it's, it's an environment where we have distinct social challenges. And, you know, in that context, uh, we've been able to, to grow the business and um, establish our brand and uh, and our clients are are very comfortable and happy to deal with us as a company on top of that we operate in an environment where unfortunately you know our governance in in government and in many corporates has uh, proven to be uh, very poor uh, whereas you know growth point has uh, stood out uh, providing a honest um, and and truthful way of doing business continuously uh, over over the period and and we pride ourselves on on that and you know if you take all those little aspects now you know they, they obviously some of them cost money and uh, and you know how do you quantify that and how does that prove to the international environment that uh, you know you you can sustain yourself but i can tell you what uh, in the same environment uh, the big brands like mckinsey's etc have proven to have stumbled and failed and they're gone, right? So the reality is uh, your brand is absolutely key. Uh, even the large audit firms, we've had uh, Deloitte and uh, KPMG uh, come under extreme scrutiny in South Africa and, and not necessarily come up clean, you know? And-, uh, and why, why do you think that was? Was it a sort of a, um, uh, an arrogance from the head office of those businesses outside of South Africa and just uh, didn't take these businesses seriously and, and let cowboy practices unfold? Or were they directly responsible for some of those policies? Yeah, that I, I, I think uh, in many cases, uh, you know, some of the, the firms have been complicit. And I think 
mostly where the touch points and where the failures in governance came is uh, touch points with government, government specifically. So if anybody wanted to do business with government, they had to do walk on the dark side, so to speak, uh, to get their right. business done. And, uh, you know, government is uh, trying to clean up their, their act at the moment, but it's proving to be very, very difficult because similar to what we have installed, um, great social practices and ESG right throughout our business, unfortunately in government, uh, corruption has been installed right across it from the highest level mm. to the lowest. So, so I think any business that uh, wanted to deal with government uh, or was under pressure to deal with government, you know, found themselves uh, compromised if, uh, if their staff, uh, the local staff here didn't maintain um, high levels of uh, government's practices. And I think as a, as a result, some have been uh, shown to, to have failed uh, in, in that mm. aspect. But I think to bring back to your original question, you know, uh, how does this uh, deliver shareholder value? It, it speaks to uh, providing a sustainable business over the long term and being mm. able to create shareholder value uh, even in very, very difficult uh, governance environments, you know. And mm. and I think that, I, I don't think it's unique to South Africa. Unfortunately, my perception of the world's politics is that increasingly, um, you know, and it probably has been for many years, uh, you know, is that, that uh, the, the test of human character is is power. And, uh, yeah. and, and unfortunately, our politicians, uh, wherever they yeah. are globally, uh, some countries have done better than others, but, you know, many countries, uh, poor governance is also installed in their government. And, uh, and that plays out in, in the way that uh, many, many have tried to do their business. But we don't mm. believe that's sustainable. And I think mm. we'll prove that over the long term. Mm. Well, thank you. But back to the sort of the, the bricks and mortar. Yeah. One of your key assets, which... You know, if I was asked what's what, what are my top five, what would be my top five uh, projects anywhere in the world in the listed market, I, I could quickly point to VNA, Victorian Alfred. I, I think it's an exceptional property. You know, it's one of the most visited uh, tourism attractions in 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 Africa and certainly in South Africa. So, and it puts to shame, uh, you know, when we see here in Australia some local uh, attempts, whether it's the likes of Darling Harbour and in Sydney, for example, um, maybe just give people a better idea of, of what v is about. But, you know, it really is a, 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 um, an active, integrated uh, working port with uh, all sorts of commercial tourism-related activities, right? Correct. So we're very, very blessed to be involved with that asset uh, it is a key historic site for South Africa. It was the first port, if you'd like, in the country uh, developed by the, the, the Dutch settlers initially and then expanded in 1860 by the, the British who were in occupation at the time. And uh, the Victoria is obviously comes from Queen Victoria and Alfred was her second son's name. And that, that is where the, the brand emanates from. And what makes the asset special is, as you've mentioned, apart from it being uh, in, incredibly mixed use, uh, it also has multiple historic tourist attractions. Um, you know, it's speaking to the early uh, um, days of, of uh, you know, Western development in, 
in the, the point of, uh, of South Africa. And what we have been able to do uh, over, uh, over the, the years that we have been involved, so let's say 10 odd years, is we've been able to expand this asset. So today the asset uh, has uh, 11 odd hotels, uh, top draw hotels, uh, as you pointed out, uh, it's got a very, very large retail facility that doesn't just offer uh, things that you can uh, acquire globally. So, you know, the, the, the big brands like Louis Vuitton and all these kind of uh, uh, brands are all in there. But on top of that, there are very unique uh, South African offerings that, um, that attract tourists uh, to it. We've, uh, we've created something called the Watershed which is micro uh, businesses that offer very, very unique uh, items, you know, specific leather works or uh, crafts, etc. cetera. And, uh, and these things cannot be acquired internationally. So it makes it a very uniquely South African experience. And uh, we've also brought in cuisine and food experiences into that area. So, you know, the interesting thing when we did a uh, economic study uh, of Cape Town, uh, of Cape Town's GDP, it turned out that if a tourist came to, to Cape Town and they spent a dollar, 60 cents of the dollar would have been spent at the VNA. So it's a very key component of the Cape Town economy. And it, as you've pointed out, you know, it sort of sticks out. Um, it's the most visited property on the continent. It's the most valuable property on the continent. And we own it jointly with the Government Employees Pension Fund, which is the biggest pension fund on the continent and one of the biggest in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, that really has been quite a successful uh, relationship for us to develop out this asset. So we've added additional um, residential, we've added additional um, uh, office and, uh, and, and hospitality to this. And at the same time, there's an active operating harbor, which means that, you know, there's shipbuilding, there's, uh, there's um, uh, yachting uh, marinas, etc., which really creates a vibrance, you know. So there's people every day, there's people coming to work in the precinct and go and and some of them live sleep and play there others go home at night so they continuously i think there's more than 24 million visitors 25 million visitors a year now ironically that was our best performing asset in the country uh, in certainly from a real estate perspective but it's also in the past year and a half been the most impacted so unfortunately with tourism uh, drying up, uh, you know, and and uh, people not uh, being allowed to travel or not being able to travel or not wanting to travel, uh, that has materially impacted uh, the VNA because a third of the business uh, that the VNA does is tourists from abroad, and clearly mm -hmm. then the balance is domestic. Now, the um, the impact has been severe, and you know I would say that profitability is literally halved. Uh, on on that on that asset, and yes, it's unfortunately a short term thing. But some of those uh, impacts are lasting, and that you know some of the businesses, albeit that that we as a as as real estate investors have have helped uh, the smaller businesses by giving them rent relief and by even deferring um, you know rentals etc. Some of those businesses have failed 
um, you know, outright and, and, and will never uh, come out of liquidation. So the, the reality is, is there are unfortunately some lasting aspects. And, you know, some of these businesses have been around 30 years. So it, it, it gives you an idea of the severity of, uh, of the impact on, on that specific asset um, uh, in, in, in this context. But a very exciting asset and certainly uh, any individual coming from abroad, coming to visit South Africa, Cape Town is the most beautiful city in the world. And, um, and the VNA is most one of the most exciting places to go. So, you know, the, the reality is, is we do believe that uh, there will be pent up demand uh, once we uh, get the world vaccinated. And when travel uh, kind of comes back, I think we might find that uh, there'll be a boom in that uh, in that specific precinct. Well, I, I look forward to getting back there and sitting and having a quiet beer and some freshly shucked oysters because it's one of the, <laughs> as I say, it's, it's a great place. Anyway, Brilliant. look, so that to me, that's, as I say, one of the most fascinating aspects of the business. But it's also the case that you are probably one of the most diversified REITs that I know of in terms of geographically as well as sectorally. I'm just curious in terms of when, you know, we look around the world, there's been that shift towards the focus. Um, and, and also we've seen, you know, whether it was the Japanese in the 80s, the English in the 70s, you know, the Singaporeans have lost money going overseas. Um, the Australians certainly uh, in the 90s, uh, the noughties, um, what are the sort of key things that, you know, you're doing um, or having to do um, to avoid the mistakes that you've seen others make over the years, both, as I say, by, by sectoral diversification, because you don't see many major diversified vehicles uh, and also geographic diversification? Yeah, maybe, Andrew, just, to, you know, in, in maybe understanding why, you know, why would... Uh, we venture out uh, into the big wide world uh, where, where you're moving to other territories where, you know, maybe you, initially you weren't as familiar with those. And I think the, the first thing was, you know, if you know that your economy is going down and, uh, you know, you can sit there and just bear it or you can do something about it. And I think it comes back to that opportunism that I spoke about from a strategic point of view that, that GrowthPoint always has in its DNA. I think the second thing that um, you have to appreciate is that South Africa, uh, our currency, it's, we've got a very, very well-developed financial sector. I would argue even more developed than Australia in many aspects. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the, um, the executives that operate in, in, uh, in the big real estate companies have all come out of the financial services sector. And we have had to learn how to deal with incredibly volatile in economic environment. So, you know, you could have the RAND as our currency uh, can escalate um, uh, or uh, devalue by 30 percent uh, in um, in a 12 month period and can can strengthen by 30 percent in, in the period. So which leads to inflation, which leads to interest rate impacts, etc. So all these aspects have given us the ability uh, I wouldn't say foolproof, but certainly given us the ability to manage risks that other guys uh, wouldn't even have been aware of. So prior to the financial crisis, the, the GFC, you know, we were already uh, terming our debt, right? Uh, so that we don't have concentration risk on our debt. We've always, when we look at our interest rates, 
we have we look at the 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 sort of uh, terming out those interest rate swaps over time we've always used interest rate swaps uh, as a, a, a risk mitigation um, factor uh, since inception and then you know when it when it came to currency risk given the level of volatility we naturally built in uh, you know uh, those those metrics as well so when we uh, expanded into Australia, which was our first destination. I think we le leveraged off, um, off uh, certainly our very strong relationships with uh, international investment banks. Uh, we leveraged off our strong relationships with many expat South Africans uh, in Australia and that, that, you, that you could rely on and, and that you could uh, take um, you know, uh, advice from. And, and we did really spend more than a year just working on, you know, the market and where we could play, et cetera, because, you know, clearly we weren't going to waltz in there and, um, and try and acquire Westfields, you know, given where we were coming from, which was a high interest and, and, rate, high yielding environment. Just as well, by the way. <laughs> correct, correct. So ultimately where we decided to play was, um, you know, in a very niche area initially, which was sort of assets, let's say above $50 million, which meant you kind of uh, just moved out of the private client investment market a little bit at the time. And it was sort of under the 200 million, which meant you weren't batting against the Dexuses and the, uh, all the big companies uh, for assets. So we, we were then also focused on metropolitan office, which was kind of a little bit contrarian, to be honest, at the time in the Australian context. In that, um, you know, the, obviously the CBDs have always been uh, where the prime assets have been. But uh, we have uh, in South Africa, the prime markets are the decentralized markets, surprisingly, uh, given our unique uh, uh, sort of uh, aspects in, in South Africa. So it was very familiar to us. And then clearly the industrial environment, the original vehicle that we acquired had 24 odd industrial properties. And in fact, 70% of the uh, rental came from one tenant, which was Woolworths at the time. So, you know, what we, was, what we saw was an opp opportunity to recapitalize a company that had really quality tenants, quality assets, but had a bit of a stressed balance sheet. And, you know, we could fix that. And, um, and I think that gave us a good platform to over time grow uh, the company. So the assets have grown from 650 to uh, over $4.3 billion today and, and growing. In fact, the new valuations have, uh, have seen how strong that Australian market is and just our external valuations that came in, have, um, uh, it seems to be that we're going to have uh, over 7% increase in our, um, in our asset value there. So the market has been particularly strong. But wherever we've gone globally, we've always applied certain basic principles. So we look at your rental per square meter. We look at the, the, the valuation per square meter. So we bring, bring it down to kind of dumb it down, if you like, for ourselves, down to very core property fundamentals. And we then assess it relative to the uh, within that market to try and understand, you know, where the value is and what makes sense. You know, often you could find uh, people buy into an asset and they pay a, a, a very reasonable yield for an asset, but the, the rental is double what it should be. It's over rented, you know? And, and we, we all, we careful of these very basic sort of principles uh, in, in when we look at, at real estate. 
And um, and I think then the other thing that we've always had success with is we focus on the people we work with, you know. Uh, so we try and build sustainable relationships, whether it's with our management teams, with our boards, and and then also with the clients that we deal with in those countries uh, that, that we have. And, um, you know, ultimately you're reliant on people and your relationships with people. And, and that's proven to be a, a successful way uh, to do business in that, you know, we try and treat people the way we would like to be treated. And uh, it sounds like a very simple principle, but often in business that is quite is forgotten, certainly in the short term, quite often. All right. So not the true to mean and keep them keen <laughs> approach. Then. Yeah, so you can do that once or twice, but uh, you quite quickly run out of runway. You know? Okay. Now, with that in mind, what's your sort of key observations globally in terms of, you know, the debates about retail uh, and, and the future, you know, has e-commerce accelerated the demise of retail? The debates about office and the work from home uh, uh, issue. Uh, you know, what, and I'm happy for you to talk about where you think the key things that have changed, either geographically uh, or, or sectorally today, versus perhaps what you were thinking, you know, at the end of 2019. Interestingly enough, those aspects, obviously very property related, are probably, um, you know, areas that, that uh, I'll, I'll cover. But I think my biggest concern over the past uh, few years has been the extremely low interest rates, which are, I would say, synthetically there in that you've had stimulus coming from every single government to prop up the economy, you know. And in, 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 uh, in a world that is moving forward, I'm not quite sure how sustainable that will be uh, and, uh, and what the impact will be when that starts to unwind. So if interest rates start moving up uh, in the world, I think you'll find that many valuations are, are quite bloated uh, across the globe in, in all assets. And, and that's probably been one area that I personally have, have worried about. But bringing back to the sort of property fundamentals. Now, in South Africa, in a funny kind of a way, we have been quite sheltered, given just sort of the, some of the dynamics in, in our society that, that we haven't seen the level of take up of online services, broadly speaking. Um, and and uh, as a result, you know, I would say that uh, online trade of total retail was about 1.8 and moved up to maybe four odd percent uh, where we are today. So South Africans typically shop at shopping centers and, and albeit that that has changed marginally, it's still not a material uh, movement. The that activity we've seen in the UK, in Australia, all those places. And as a result, we've probably got reasonably low exposure uh, to retail in Australia and Eastern Europe. In the UK, we, we took an active decision to buy in and it obviously proved that we probably we, we went in three months too early. Uh, in perfect hindsight, we, we recapitalized the small retail player in the UK. But then again, you know, what we focused on and why we thought we were buying value at the time is we really looked at the rentals per square meter. Now, if you look at the Westfields in the UK, etc., you know, their rentals are probably 30 to 40 pounds a square meter. 
Whereas, or square, yeah, square, I think they work in square foot, to be honest. But anyway, square three, if, you, yeah. if you then uh, look at the shopping centers, we, we, we have a needs-based shopping center investment, which looks at the, you know, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker kind of uh, offering and uh, groceries, etc. And the rentals were 12 to 15, you know. So, so we, we believe that, that, you know, that, and in fact, it has proven to be true fundamentally. We haven't seen our rentals um, uh, come under huge pressure. In fact, uh, the leases that have been have renewed, in fact, have even in this environment um, increased marginally. But what what hurt us in the UK clearly is um, you had two things. One is is you had extreme lockdown provisions on the one hand, and then I would argue you had a government endorsed rental strike. So if uh, government protects retailers to the extent that landlords aren't against uh, aren't allowed to act against them in any way, way shape or form then clearly you're going to see abuse and that's what we have seen in the real estate industry in the uk so there's been quite a lot of value destruction there unfortunately but we believe things are turning uh, there specifically but i think to come back to the point is we've as a result of many of those dynamics we've sort of been quite careful in, um, in, in, in getting huge uh, retail exposure in any of the global jurisdictions where we're not 100% certain as to what the end answer is going to be. As it relates to the work from home, I mean, in South Africa, uh, we have, uh, have seen uh, extreme uh, scenario, specifically in Santon, which is the sort of main financial district in South Africa. And here we've seen many uh, companies Forced their, 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 Joe, Joe their, just we've seen a huge amount of companies force their staff to actually work from home. And, um, and as such, uh, you know, we've seen many em empty office buildings, some of them let, some of them not let, but uh, vacancies have increased. So as we sit here today, we, we the largest office player in South Africa, we got 1.7 million square meters of offices. And at this point, there's about 300 uh, 20 odd thousand square meters vacant. So pushing 20% uh, vacancy, which is the highest that we've ever seen. Now, my view on this is that it's less about the work from home dynamic and more about the economic impact that it's had. So if you look at the Gauteng province, which is the province where Johannesburg and Pretoria, uh, the two big cities and Vereniging, those three big cities are in, um, you know, this, this province economically uh, saw its GDP retract by 17.5%. So it's gone back to 2012 levels. Now, that means that people are being laid off. That means that demands dropped off a cliff, right? And, and that's probably a bigger dynamic than the work-from-home dynamic in the South African context. And what I firmly believe, and um, I'm sure Darren Steinberg from, uh, from Texas will share my opinion, is that what we will see when, when everybody's vaccinated and everybody feels that they, they're safe, that we will see a material move back to office. Uh, and the reason is people are social. And they also like the, uh, the fact that there's a, a break between their work and their home activities. And I think the other thing that we will find is, is that going forward, I think staff will probably... Uh, require more flexibility. So what we have seen, I mean, uh, a couple of years back, we did quite a lot of work in Australia trying to understand, you know, the, the flex office sort of offerings. 
Uh, we visited NAB, we visited ANZ, we visited many corporates, uh, Macquarie, all the banks that were sort of on the fourth cusp of that uh, that sort of uh, activity, JLL. And ultimately, the answer was that companies sort of gave up roughly about 10% of their space uh, in, in aggregate. And, and we also saw an increase in, let's call it quality of life space in the office. In the, in the offices, so breakout space, etc. In South Africa, I don't think that uh, trend has played out uh, yet. And I think what this uh, pandemic will do is accelerate that uh, trend. So I think on top of a difficult economy, you probably see a little bit of a contraction in, in demand um, uh, from that, that behavior and because staff will come back and they will want uh, some flexibility. Um, you know, to avoid traffic, as an example, or just to have the option to maybe, you know, take a couple of meetings uh, on, on teams at home and then and then filter into the office at a later stage. So I do think that you'll find that 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 flexibility will come, which will have a negative impact. But on the other hand, the countervailing uh, aspect will be that the level of densification that we have seen. So, I mean, the most extremes are We've got a, a collaborative workspace offering here called Workshop 17. Uh, the we, WeWorks here as well. I mean, those guys were pushing five um, five square meters per employee, if you'd like, or per, per person in the office. And I do think that you're going to see that reverse out to ensure a level of social distancing, which is quite a uh, prevalent uh, requirement in certainly the South African space. And I think that'll be globally. So that will be hopefully, you know, even things out. Have you seen anything different? Like, uh, have you noticed anything different from, you know, what's taking place in your Central European uh, office assets or in Australia, for example? And I know it's still, it's still early, early days. Early days still. So, you know, at this point um, in those assets, we actually haven't seen uh, material changes. I do think that, you know, uh, on the fundamental side in Australia, there is a bit of a disconnect from the investment side. If you want to, if you want to put a uh, sort of a, a finger in, in in the wound in a way. So you know, fundamentally, rentals aren't really growing uh, strongly in the Australian context, uh, whether it's industrial uh, or office for that matter. There being those two sectors, and and there have been firms that have have struggled. You know, so so demand has uh, dropped off a little bit. Um, hopefully that will pick up and, and we will reserve, uh, reverse some of that. We've seen face rentals hold, but incentives have increased. So, you know, that, that has crept through, uh, will creep through the financial statements uh, uh, over, over time. And you're not seeing your top line grow in line with valuations. So albeit that valuations have gone crazy on the, on the industrial side of things, I don't think the fundamentals really have supported that. So it's not fundamentally driven. I think it's driven by a demand for yield in an environment which has got um, bizarrely low interest rates uh, globally, you know. So investors are looking for, for yield pickup. I want to talk to you about the interest rate dynamic in a moment um, because I think it's an important issue that you've raised and referred to in a couple of times. But I want to focus on that in a moment. But I guess <clears throat> on the office, um, I think everybody we've spoken, or most people we've spoken with, I think everybody appreciates it's still a very complicated dynamic um, and it's not entirely clear, but it does seem that, that some sort of hybrid 
is most likely. I think it was curious that uh, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg's come out and said that his staff can work from home. And if I was being cynical, I'd say what he's doing is he's just testing out his employees and the ones that turn up at work are going to be the ones that get rewarded and the ones that don't, he's going to say, I don't want you anymore. So, uh, Interesting you know. <laughs> on that topic, we had a client in here the other day, uh, I think they were a big insurance firm, and they did a staff survey. I mean, most companies have uh, actually done that, including GrowthPoint. And um, it's interesting how the profile worked. He said 10% of staff only wanted to work in the office. The next 30% of staff wanted to predominantly work in the office with flexibility, maybe a day or maybe a day and a half or two at home. Then the next 30% wanted the other way around, predominantly work at home with flexibility to come into the office a day or two. And those typically would be people that maybe don't live quite as close to the office uh, as the, the others. So they're trying to avoid traffic and, you know, there's all good reasons why they were. And then there was the 20% at the bottom that only wanted to work at home. And this guy's comment was, hmm, those guys are the ones that we're going to be watching very, very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So, so with your incremental dollar, and again, I wanted to talk about interest rates because I think from your perspective, it'd be very interesting. But with an incremental dollar of investment, you know, given the world is your oyster, so to speak, getting back to oysters and and uh, and VNA, where would you uh, invest? Do you think? It's a hotly debated topic at the Growth Point Board at the moment because you know. Clearly, uh, in this environment, what has happened is capital to South African real estate companies has sort of dried up. Uh, GrowthPoint did uh, accelerated book build, raised 4 billion rand uh, uh, in November last year. In fact, we were criticized to some extent by some of our existing shareholders, very well supported uh, internationally, uh, that uh, capital raise but kind of it sucked up most of the capital available for real estate uh, at the moment. So there's not a lot of money looking for real estate exposure in this environment, given all the uncertainty. So that means that, you know, there isn't that much capital available. And, you know, to the extent that you're trading at uh, a 40% discount to NAV, similar to many of the other real estate companies globally, you know, most real estate executives aren't so keen to issue huge quantities of shares. So growth is a, is a little bit of a difficult scenario. Uh, we've got uh, a, a investment market in South Africa, which now is a little bit capital constrained and liquidity to sell assets is also limited. We have had some success, but you know, it's hard work. And, um, and I think when we look at uh, the world, you know, where do you put your money? Do you go increase Australia, which, uh, you know, across the board looks like, you know, pricing is hotter than it's ever been? Or do you potentially go to the UK, which is, I mean, literally valuations every six months have dropped off 20%, you know, and uh, in, in retail specifically. And do you think... So re retail malls are down 60% off their peak values. Yeah, which is correct, just correct, correct. And I mean, you've got big uh, problem Charlie's like um, Intu and, uh, you know, Hammerson to a large extent that in those markets, which, you know, creating quite an overhang and value is literally every six months are writing down those assets by 20%. Now we probably think that maybe there's another, maybe 10, 15% probably still in there, but we would argue that the UK probably is, must be reasonably close to the bottom, right? 
right? Um, and, and there is that little joke to say there's nothing like an ugly property, only an ugly price. And um, I think at some point, you know, that 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 support will will come in. And we have seen some of the bigger, uh, let's call it private equity uh, players uh, raising funds uh, for opportunities into into that into that space. So it's got a big economy, a strong market. And, you know, maybe that might look a little bit interesting. Um, we I think ultimately you know, for a company like ourselves, which is maybe uh, a little bit unique relative to maybe some of the companies, uh, the other real estate companies globally. You know, if you've got limited capital, uh, it might force us to consolidate a little bit, uh, Andrew. So, you know, it might mean that we we exit uh, one of our investments to be able to strengthen uh, another investment. So it might, it, it definitely means that we, um, that we are thinking, um, three, four times more about our capital and where we deploy it. And I think that, mm. you know, that's one of the reasons why we've uh, started this fund management business uh, to, mm. to continue to grow our business, but with um, on a capital light basis, you know, where, where we're looking at, um, at, uh, at other people's money to help fund our growth. And, and then that gives you a lot of flexibility in the jurisdictions where we've got uh, strong presence, you know, so it means that we can, that we don't have to. Yeah, it seems that funds management, is, equity. Funds management is back in favour. Um, mm. yeah, we're hearing it more well, and we've more. We've seen uh, but you guys got a, uh, the fund managers have traded and all the acquisitions in that space and the prices that have been paid is our watering. Mm. Yes, and, um, you know, clearly a, a vehicle in which you were curious about, shall we say, is... Um, Looks like a change of control with uh, Dexas uh, uh, stepping. Now, you mentioned interest rates, and and one of the, the reasons I thought that the, the story might be interesting for for global uh, investors is, of course, all this concern about the impacts of higher interest rates and property yields. I mean, you guys have been operating in a market with with high, relatively high nominal and real interest rates for a period of time. Um, so, just take us through what what's the the lessons that you can, I guess, share with um, with international investors about uh, any increase in inflation and 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 interest rates, or or do you think it's very much a peculiar issue to to South Africa where the, where the lessons aren't necessarily I mean, transferable. Yeah. I mean, I think um, I think everybody learns as they go, but you know, certainly, I think the first thing that uh, that that always is a risk is that you know low interest rates can lull you into the impression that you know it's a great deal when you're buying something at four and funding it to two, you know, uh, and 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 that it might not be a great deal because uh, 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 you know yields can uh, can move up, okay. And interest rates can double, you know, and uh, and you can find yourself in a difficult position. And I think, let's say, coming from a South African environment where our cost of capital is actually quite high. I mean, our bond yields are over nine percent. Um, you know, our average borrowing is is over over nine percent if if you're using uh, predominantly fixed debt. So just stop there. Just want to stop you there. Just want to stop you there because, as you said, bond yields and 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 borrowing rates are over nine percent. Yeah. Now, what what a property 
yields in an what would you say a, a sort of a, a property yield in in South Africa today would be yeah, for yeah. for office logistics and etc. So there's been one benchmark deal that's just gone through. I, I wouldn't say um, you know one swallow is a summer, but uh, recently the government employees pension fund uh, under the PRC's management bought uh, the Deloitte's head office in Waterfall at a seven seventy five. So that would be mm. a, a very long uh, whale, uh, and it would be sort of a, a, a I wouldn't say a trophy asset, but a, a very good quality uh, office building. So that would be, I would say, right at the top end, right? Um, I would argue. So, so my point, uh, that the point why I stopped you is the point why I stopped you is that everybody for the last ten years has just been saying in 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 developed markets, Australia, the US, etc. Property yields, it's bonds plus 200 basis points, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. You're, you know, in South Africa, from what I understand, that dynamic, it's bonds less. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I'll tell you why historically that was the case was because you had embedded growth rate of, I would say, 5 to 7%. So we have contractual mm. leases with our tenants, which escalate roughly averaging 7%. Now, unfortunately, in this environment, what's happening is that leases have become significantly shorter and in mm -hmm. fact we're seeing negative reversions on on renewals of 15 percent negative so mm. when you're looking at your total return kind of calculation just to bring you back as to how how guys were paying um, below bond yields uh, in a sort of initial yield uh, space for assets was they were buying an asset at seven percent as an example and they were getting 70% growth. So that meant they were getting a total return of circa 14%. Their cost of capital would be would have been on average at that time, maybe 8 to 9% broadly speaking, uh, on a blended basis with debt. And uh, so it's post positive financial leverage, you know, ultimately in terms of the investment. In this environment, unfortunately, that we are now in South Africa, you know, that, that is definitely not the case. And that's why liquidity has dried up to the extent. So if, you, if you're buying an asset and you're paying 9% for it and there's no growth, just to keep it simple, then your total yeah. returns 9%, which means that, yeah. uh, you know, now all of a sudden there's no margin. And, and the argument then was, well, then the asset should be trading at 12 or 13% because, you know, you're looking for, yes, the yield environment has changed. It is a bit lower and maybe... You know, there is a bit of a, a lesser premium uh, being added to real estate because the, the risk is maybe, you know, given where we are in the cycle, maybe we're at the bottom, maybe, you know, uh, things will start turning. So um, I, I think that... So without, without putting words in your mouth, without putting words in your mouth, uh, this is the problem that the, the, as you said, I mean, it is a challenge to understand how the dynamic plays through once these synthetically low interest rates and QE and all the rest of it un unfolds or unravels or is withdrawn, however you want to describe it, how real estate values respond. And, and my takeaway is, you know, having looked at say the UK market, having looked at South Africa, it depends on the, the key issues you've just highlighted, which is the the the, pro, the pricing power the growth that the asset is able to produce to offset the higher interest rates and liquidity so yeah. of course if you don't have the right fundamentals well i wouldn't pay a premium to a to a bond but if i've got something that's robust uh and there's liquidity available 
then the total return I make offsets that higher interest rate. Do you think that's uh, the, 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 the key well, take? I think it, it comes back to, you know, I think I mentioned earlier, we always boil it, dumb it down to ourselves to some like basic fundamentals, you know. Uh, so where's your rental level and where's rental going? You know, that's the first sort of thing. Mm. Then the second thing is, is when you uh, kind of put your yield into a rate per square meter, from a value perspective, where's that relative to building new assets? Okay. And, and that in the South African context where we've got very loose planning regimes is quite relevant because, you know, the, the sort of barriers to entry are a little bit lower uh, of adding new supply, you know? And then I think when you think about these interest rates or return sort of that you're looking for your, for your, for your assets, you know, I think we always kind of go back to the total return that you expect over a period, maybe 10 years. And, and then you kind of try and contextualize that with the, 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 the return uh, or your weighted cost of capital, be it your forward yield on your shares, be it your, um, your, your cost of debt. And, um, mm. and all those things have to talk to each other. So I do think that, uh, you know, in uh, just using the Australian context for a moment, you know, if you if you buying an asset at four percent because uh, you can get debt at two, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good deal, right? Because uh, mm, yeah. it depends yeah. on what's going to happen uh, to the underlying yeah. dynamics there. So uh, we are, I mean, to be honest, we've probably been net sellers in Australia uh, over mm. the past period because of these dynamics. And um, and I think you know we'll we'll wait maybe, and it's it's quite difficult because you, you do get tested from time to time as to your resolve uh, on your view, but you know the reality is is you have to take a view as, as to what's going to happen in that economy and what interest rates will do over over the longer term uh, in 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 when you're making your invest. The risk for for us investing from South Africa has always been that when you invest offshore okay the first thing that can happen is that you're buying assets and their valuation let's say an extreme scenario the valuation can halve okay and at the same time interest rates can double and then the rand can also weaken so if you add all that into a pot it's an absolute disaster right so when we when we look at that we try and hedge out wherever we can some of those risks and we try and lock in that margin and um and that's proven to be reasonably successful, but not foolproof. So, I mean, you look at the UK, you've got a black swan event there. Uh, valuations have literally halved, okay. Mm. And, um, and, and that has, uh, you know, made, made some of those uh, uh, investments maybe less attractive, to be, to be honest. Well, I see, look, the last 10 years, we've had the GFC, we've had COVID, I, I think all the risks are gone now. It's just all smooth sailing for the next, uh, you know, uh, 20, 30 years. We've had to deal with some tough times. And uh, we, we've on top mm. of the, the challenges that we have economically uh, and obviously socially, as, as well as uh, on the health side of things, uh, we've also in an environment where uh, our municipal system and um, the utility uh, utilities have deteriorated significantly. So uh, we in an environment where we now on level three, uh, what they refer to load shedding from an electrical, electrical point of view. So we've got uh, one national uh, uh, generating utility, power utility and, and they are basically switching off certain areas 
uh, on a uh, on a two hourly basis at the moment. So that means for us as a real estate company, all of a sudden we starting to play municipality to our clients. So all our buildings we've had to put up uh, backup generating power. Uh, in in some areas in Cape Town, for example, we've uh, there was significant water problems. Now it's in Eastern Cape. Uh, Port Elizabeth um, or Gebega, as they've renamed the city, and uh, and we've had to put in uh, all sorts of water measures there, and um, and then you know if your road infrastructure is also deteriorating, you've got to build roads. So you know this has all come uh, at a time when municipal rates and taxes, and that's not just a South African thing; it is globally, where the municipal rates and taxes uh, or administered costs, as we broadly refer to them as has been escalating continuously in excess of inflation. So at the same time, you're seeing your, your top line getting squeezed. You've got municipal uh, rates and uh, electricity charges at double-digit uh, inflation. So it's called margin squeeze. And um, those, those aspects uh, are, is, is certainly putting a bit of pressure on us. And, um, and it's meaning for us as an industry, we have to start batting a bit smarter and batting a bit cleverer. And, you know, you're starting to challenge some of the legislative frameworks in, in, in our country, certainly. But even internationally, you know, we're seeing in the UK that same pressure is coming across with business rates, etc. So certainly uh, not, not the easiest environment we've ever had to deal in. And uh, hopefully some of these things will start improving. Well, you've just highlighted again just what a hearty bunch you guys are and, and why I enjoy going there so much because you guys are, uh, as I say, great to deal with and, and really do, you know, take on challenges and, um, you know, uh, hopefully things get a little bit uh, better on a number of different fronts uh, there for you in the next couple of years. But, um, look, uh, I, honestly, I really appreciate your time and um, look forward to coming over and seeing you and my other South African friends uh, as soon as possible, I hope. Uh, and uh, until then, you know, to, to the team, again, condolences on the, on the losses, um, but, um, you know, good health, for, I hope, for, for the team that uh, can go forward. Yeah, we've got a little expression to say, keep positive, but stay negative. <laughs> so good luck there and uh, <laughs> in, enjoy. And, uh, and, and uh, yeah, we look forward to seeing you soon, Andrew. And uh, yeah, likewise, we're burning to... To get out to Australia, you know, we um, as a management team, we used to at a minimum twice a year be in Australia, kicking the tires on on opportunities and things. And uh, unfortunately, that hasn't uh, been able to happen uh, given the travel restrictions between the two countries. And you know, our two countries have got, albeit uh, foes on the rugby field, we are big trading partners in many aspects. And um, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, South Africa still uh, is, um, is one of the biggest uh, providers of immigrants to Australia in, uh, in that I think 10% of your immigrants come still from South Africa. And, uh, and I think because of that, it's just strengthened the relationship yeah, between exactly. the countries. Exactly. And uh, we do think about things the same way. And, uh, yeah, we uh, certainly miss that and we look forward to that in the future. Cheers. A quick note, this podcast is general in nature and does not take into account your personal objectives, financial situation or needs. 